Our world is lost in unnecessary fear and hurt. Our systems seem scientifically engineered to make you small, powerless, and always waiting for the next great leader who will fix the problems around us. Worse, we're witnessing neighbor versus neighbor while warfare breaks out around our family tables. But you have access to a spirit, a strength that enlarges and empowers you. Even better, you don't need to wait for the next big movement. You can heal the world. It's time for governance by Grace. Welcome to Gracearchy with Jim Babka. So, Jim, we're going to continue our season two sort of theme here of faith, faith in the big world, faith walk. And thanks to some events that happened this week, I think we've got some things to say about the function of church and how that really works. So to set this up, to set this up, uh, the thing that happened is that Rick Warren and the Southern Baptist Convention decided that parting ways was the best thing to preserve the Southern Baptist Convention's uh, position. I'll call it a position. It might be a dogmatic position that women pastors are not acceptable in the Southern Baptist Convention denominations. And of course, Saddleback Church in California and a couple of others, the way I understand it, were basically given the heave-ho for ordaining women and having women pastors in leadership. I, I think this is a, a useful conversation to have, even though it's a conversation that has pretty much been over and done in denominations like the Methodists and the Lutherans and Episcopalians, I believe. The other major sort of Protestant religions have decided to part ways. But that was over the issue of way more than having a woman in leadership. That was over LGBTQ issues and ordaining lesbian, gay, trans, bisexual, or questioning pastors. And um, that division is one that, it, you know, it's happening. And it may be a necessary division. But let's bring it home and talk about this, because I'm, I'm not aware of any other Christian church beyond the uh, Catholics who refuse to ordain women. Do I have that right? I, I, to my knowledge, yes. I mean, I think it is a Baptist distinctive. I mean, I'm sure there's some independent churches out there that are that are wired this way. Yeah. I don't yeah. You know. I can't I would be surprised if there's Amish churches with but they don't have pastors. Yeah, that's different leadership. I'm 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 interested in the fact that at so many times you see a culture war battle going on, it's a battle over something else. You know this better than I do, but the Methodists have some issues too, right? You've got a family member who's Methodist. Yep. Couldn't be ordained in the Methodist church, but is is a trans-ordained chaplain now. And that's the perfect lane for them. So trying to figure out how to split up, and their issues have been more complicated because you know, in the Baptist setting, Rick Warren didn't lose his church. Saddleback right. Church was, was, was told, to, you know, you're no longer part of the SBC. But so what? Like yeah. it, it's it, the the SBC is an umbrella organization that provides some services, but Saddleback is one of the largest churches in the entire country. Rick Warren, Rick Warren doesn't take a salary. He's a best-selling author who ties back to his church, and he's not. I don't even think like the daily pastor there anymore. He's he's old. Yeah. He's retired. I, th I think he's actually in a yeah. He's a kind of in a, in a uh, emeritus type of position. Right. So he does some occasional speaking on behalf of the church or whatever. And he's a famous guy. And he, you know, he's the guy that started the whole thing down there. And it's a big, big church. It's what's called a mega church. So it did he didn't really lose anything, Bill? 
Right, right. But he still chose to have this fight to stay. I would, in fact, before this fight, I wouldn't have even known for sure that he was a Baptist. I my exposure to him came in a Nazarene church of all places, right? Yeah, I I just I was surprised as well. Yeah, I didn't even know he was affiliated with the SBC. So the fact that he was fighting to stay in the SBC, despite the fact that he didn't want to follow this particular rule, to me was an interesting decision, but not in a good way. Like I'm not a fan of all the conflict that shows up. I mean, I don't like it in, in, in politics either. And this is to me just another form of politics. This is a different, this, the reason this issue is relevant and we got to talk about it is for the same reason all the other conflict that goes on because of culture, the conflict machine that's driven by culture war issues is going on. So this is a, I don't, it's a pretty big one. I was going to say it's a microcosm, but this is a, yet another example of how maybe the issue of control is playing out within a large organization that also is influencing a large part of America's political voice. Yes, it is. Uh, the, 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 the leader on the other side of this question is a gentleman that most people have never heard of named Albert Moeller. And Albert Moeller has long been very closely tied to Republican causes. So this, there definitely is a culture war battle that's being waged in here. And I think that the culture war battles on balance have been bad, a bad testimony. And I, and, I, and I mean this all the way around. It has not served individual relationship with God. It has actually been a turnoff. It has changed what, the, what, what gathering together has been about. And I've seen this on both sides of the equation. I'm not. I, I'm going to be. Un, I'm going to be brutal to both sides here because what has happened on one side is that they have made their thing more about politics, and so they've tried to get political power, and they have decided that they have to preserve culture. And the other side has made it more obsessively about me and look at how I'm wired, and this is me. And do you? By the way, do you see me? And they've baptized a brand new type of theology that is much more about making me feel good. And somewhere in all of this, in somewhere in all of this, what's been lost is the connection to a timeless higher power, not the transient. You know, first, let's be honest about conservatism. I, I'm, I'm never ever going to say anything. Uh, uh, how do I say this? There is no such thing as conservatism, okay? We're going to say this again and again in the show. We've said it before. We'll say it again. It doesn't exist. Conservatism is is a reactionary approach to the world. It basically means my father or my grandfather or my great-grandfather's generation, in extreme cases, had it better. And somehow I don't have it good. Like we, And the reason is there were certain institutions and traditions that we had, and we just have to keep doing things the same. And I'm not speaking out of school here because one of the there was an attempt by William F. Buckley and Russell Kirk and others to turn this all into a coherent philosophy about the world. It's not, okay? I'm going to even be attending an event next week where they actually treat it like a coherent philosophy of the world. I'm not going to deny that there are conservatives, that there are conservatives who have a coherent philosophy of the world. But I'm going to tell you that when you meet conservatives, 95% of them don't have a coherent philosophy of the world. They have a reaction to things changing. And even William F. Buckley ends up giving away the show. He said, the conservative is the one who stands athwart history and yells, stop. So they don't, they're resistant to change. They think change is inherently risky, dangerous, 
bad. They're scared. It's a it's a it's a philosophy of fear. Yes, okay? you know, I I agree with you about this because there's great comfort in what you know. Okay. And there's discomfort in what you don't know. So hanging on to what you know feels more more safe, I guess. It's a safer place to hang on. Right. But if what you're gathering for on the flip side is the fact that you're a dissident group and your dissident identity that you have created, your human dissident identity is the cause celeb upon which you're going to gather, you're leaving important stuff out. Conservatives aren't 100% wrong. Dead people have th lessons to tell us. There are things that we've figured out over time about how and why things work. And the left has consistently denied the supernatural aspects of the faith that kind of connect us to something that is very spiritual and, and have constantly gone for this more social gospel where they're involved in the progressive politics of the moment. And so, whereas one group only wants to go back a few generations, they're not really timeless in their own way, the other is very much about what they want the world to be like today. Like, like you could have written their Bible almost today. So and this, so this, this tension is, is growth though, wouldn't you say? I think this tension is, I'm going to argue this tension is not necessary. Okay. And, and, and here, here's what I'm going to, let me say first. So I want to say, I wasn't, I said more about this than I intended to. So bully that's, you know, everybody got a bonus here today because the point I wanted to make is that there is a freedom of association issue is there's so freedom of association is a, is a coin with two sides on one side i get to choose who i associate with sure on the other side i get to choose whom i don't wish to associate with so we had an issue on the table here just a couple of years ago it's not as big an issue it's like you know 2016 time frame it's not quite as big now uh involving baking of cakes and our courts have decided that if a someone comes in and they want a cake for their for their gay wedding and it's a christian baker that the christian baker has to bake the cake and legally that should have never happened because freedom of association says i get to choose who i associate with and whom i don't and this is the core base essential freedom if the if this freedom doesn't exist all others erode we have to voluntarily choose. I'm a voluntarist and then I argue that I should be able to choose all my relationships. And that goes all the way up to the government level. If I don't like this government, I shouldn't have to associate with it. I should be able to choose another. And that's the foundation of those relationships. Now, could we argue about whether or not that's good Christian practice? Yes, 100%, of course you can. Because even if what you believe is that being gay is a sin and it's wrong, and it's immoral, even if that's what you believe. Your business is baking cakes. Let me give you a strategy that would be very much like turn the other cheek, carry your cross, go the extra mile, give the cake away, bake it, say, God bless you. I wish the best for you. Here it is for free because I can't take your money because of the moral qualms that I have. Give the cake away. If it's that intense and serious to you, if you believe that that's what God's telling you at that moment. But the idea that there should have been lawsuits, that this person should be compelled, legally compelled, that's slavery, by the way, compelled to serve the interests of someone with whom they disagree is wrong. So 
there was a, you know, I look at that. There's an example, Bill, of where I look at the sides. I don't look at all sides and I go a pox on all of you. you. You're all, you've all got it wrong. You chose the conflict route. You chose to force people. Now, if I were the cake baker, you know, it's a lemonade moment, man. Like if I don't understand what you're doing or why you're doing it, and maybe I've been raised to believe something else, maybe I should stop and ask a few questions instead of, you know, ready, fire, aim. But that that lemonade moment, I think, is the tension that I'm I'm talking about here. So it's not a, it doesn't have to be a conflict. Conflict is when you take the tension and you turn it into a fight. But if you have the tension and you can use it, invite invite you know the KKK to your, to your porch for lemonade. If you can use that moment and skillfully navigate through it and give the cake away, there's another uh, there's another one we're going to use, right? Eliminate yeah. moment and give the cake away. Give the cake um, away. Give the cake away. Well, this that applies for when you're not sure you agree. You think maybe something might not be right, right? You don't have to be the business of the cake maker was to make cakes. They would never turn anybody away, except now they've somehow they've been convinced they were supposed to do that. And, and I start to wonder how that happens. How why do culture war flashpoints happen? So I was I was in a call at work. This week, I cannot reveal who I was in the call with, but this person had worked for a professional polling firm. And in 2004, the Bush administration, well, the Bush reelection effort was aided by the presence of, I think it was 12 ballot initiatives to make marriage in these states only between one man and one woman. And this was, uh, there's a backstory to this and that this was driven by a group called the Arlington Group, which was a group that met in a hotel in Arlington, Virginia, or an office building, at, you know, in Arlington, Virginia. And in that meeting, they basically decided that in order to help get out the vote of conservative evangelicals, they were going to try to put as many of these initiatives on the ballot as they possibly could. And they passed in every state they were, were offered. We've come a long way in a very short time. And there was polling that was done underneath this and they had to determine how, what, where they could win and where they could lose, like what parts of the message worked and didn't. And Bill, there was something really interesting that happened here. They found out that if this was about um, rights, that it very quickly turned into special rights. And that was a winning argument for the marriage exclusivity these ballot initiative side, the get out the vote side, they were more likely to pass the ballot. But if it turned into fairness, they lost ground. The people who supported this started to slip when they thought in terms of personal fairness. So this comes down to the same thing it always does. It's, it's always empathy. Rights are derived from empathy. That's my revolutionary statement. Rights are derived from empathy. You start to see other people as human beings you start to know people real, for real, who are in a particular class that you've been told things about, and you find out that they don't have horns, carry around a pitchfork, and do bad things to children. You find out that those they're real people just like you. You Maybe they're in your family and you start to care about them. You're going to view those people differently. The only way you can maintain this is to create structures that literally create divisions. So I'm going to argue. I'm going to argue here. I'm going to argue, this is the thing I want to really get across, that there's been money, power, and prestige at stake in the Methodist denomination, in the Episcopalian denomination, and now here, even in this present Baptist situation. 
And the whole concept of denominationalism has a lot to do with money, power, and prestige. I'm, I don't, I'm fine with denominationalism. It doesn't really bother me. Go be with the people you want to be with. It's freedom of association. But these structures have power attached to them. We know, the people in the pew know, well, you know, uh, gee, uh, the people who are pro-gun tend to vote Republican. So at our progressive church, we really don't like guns and we don't like the people who carry them. Oh, okay. And the flip over in the conservative churches where they say, you know, those people over there invite people who cross-dress and who, who uh, are confused about their gender and, and, they're, and, and, and they even, you know, they, they engage in gay acts, you know, like what's going on over there? And we know they tend to vote Democrat. So yeah, we don't like them either. And this is in the pews and the pastor reinforces the, the good things that the people in the pews want because he wants the tithe to keep coming in. Hey, the Methodists have it worse because, you know, at least well, when they Rick, have property when, to cut to divide. Exactly. Up, when right? Rick Warren left, he was able to go on and live his life. Nothing has changed for Rick Warren. His church is still just the same as it was before. It didn't need, honestly, I think the Southern Baptists probably needed him more than he needed them. Yep, he, said he the same did thing. not need them because each one of the churches in the Southern Baptist Convention is independent. They're their own church. They call their own pastor. They fund their own activities. They pay their own bills. They're completely on their own. Okay, they can bond together to get certain things done, but each church is independent. It's root. That's not true with the Methodist Church. The, like most churches, they have hierarchies. Most denominations have these hierarchies, and they have property in common. So, so, so it's, there's real estate, there's pensions, there's a whole host of things that start to get in the way and they, and then they, it gets uglier because they have to figure out how they're going to split all this stuff up. The Methodists, as I understand it, are trying to be as amicable as possible because they realize a divorce is going to have to occur and they've seen how bad it's gone for other denominations, but it's still hard. It's still really, really difficult. Albert Moeller is standing up, making the statements he's making in front of the entire Southern Baptist convention trying to send Rick Warren packing and successfully did so because some power and prestige was at stake. And he's got to appeal and peace to a certain constituency within the denomination. So what we have is politics via money, via power, via prestige, sneaking in to what should be something completely different. This is not what church should be. Yes. Unless you're conservative and think that it is, right? Or progressive and think that's what or it is. Or progressive and think that it is. I, I just, all of this stuff should not, the stuff, the transitory stuff of the world on the outside should not be permeating in this way inside. There's something more important that's going on inside the doors of, of this space that has to do with the ability to relate to God. So I, I know you were raised Baptist, and I know there are probably some Baptist duns out there right now. Uh, where, where are all of, I mean, where, if you're a Baptist done, what do you do right now? Where do you go? Yeah. I'm, I'm glad you brought this up because we have, we actually have a special heart here for the Duns, which are the people who are done with church. And, and I want to say to you that you had a good reason. I mean, I, the rest of this episode, I really explained why you felt this way because it was never being done right. So being a Dun means that you recognize it wasn't done right. Being the person who gave up and stopped going. So the, the, the Duns, this term comes from, it, it's a successor term to the nuns. These are the people who are atheists or have given up completely on the idea of God and religion. They've completely walked out of all of it. Duns are people who don't attend church, who still believe that Jesus Christ is an important part of their life. They still consider themselves Christians. And, and I consider myself a Dun. I identify as a Dun. 
I think that the church, as it's presented in the New Testament, in, in Acts and, and in the writings of Paul in particular, is a new extended family. So think about belonging to a culture where you have a brand new idea that you've adopted. And that idea is considered heretical or even dangerous or deplorable in some way. I mean, at, at one point, Christians were accused of being cannibals, for example. Um, you know this isn't true, but your family has rejected you. This is the tale that's been going on forever. And there's people who've experienced this because, for example, maybe they're gay. That there's rejection that's occurred. And they're trying to follow God, so they choose to associate with, new, with people who are doing that. And they end up losing some of their family or they have difficult familial relationships in the process. And so they attach to a new family. And so it's not uncommon in Christian circles for one to refer to another male member as a brother, to another female member as a sister. Uh, there's language that Catholics refer to the priest as father. Um, uh, there are shepherding. The, the, the term for pastor in the New Testament is literally the same word as shepherd. There's a, there is a protector father role that's attached to that. Um, so there's, 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 there's the, the family is kind of a sacramental view. The cousins and stuff that you have become new cousins, right? You have this new relationship that you have where you're sitting with a group of people and discussing things. And I, just to get real super personal about this, um, I have felt over the years that in this circle, I have been able to have conversations that I cannot have with family, like my blood family. There, there's, there's a difference in the relationships that I had with the, with the members of the people that I was uh, born in blood with that it just would have been impossible in some cases. Maybe, maybe they would have been hurt by the things I was thinking or saying. Maybe they would have been, um, wouldn't have understood the things I was thinking or saying. Um, uh, maybe it would have caused some kind of division. And those things were less able to be brought up. I, in fact, I, you know, my observation of the wonderful people to whom I happen to have familial relationships with now is that we tend to spend most of our time in small talk. But if I go and I sit down with somebody in a church or Christian setting, eh, we also do heavy talk, real stuff. Like we get into some, some stuff. And so this is the place it was supposed to happen. It was supposed to be familial. It was supposed to be a new family. And I, I think this is in concert with Jesus saying to, you know, uh, who is my mother and my brothers, right? He's looking literally at his brothers. Who is my mother and my brothers? These are my brothers. And he points over to the people who were on the road with him, right? Because they understood him. They understood what he was doing at that moment. I felt the... Uh, the dogmatic exclusion, I guess, of not being accepted within a church because I had some issues with what the rest of the church believed. And maybe they weren't issues so much as they were questions. But when you ask those kinds of questions in a group that you wish to belong to, and they look at you funny, it's like, oh, no, nobody ever talks about that. That's not a great thing for inclusion. <laughs> you know? So let me say something radical. Did you at any moment there's a couple things to say about this, but let, let me say something really radical. Did you at any moment think about the idea of starting your own group? Yes. I figured that's the only way to do it. Well, I'm pretty certain that's the only way to do it too. So uh, seven times in the last 
18, 19 months. I've had a gathering at my house. They've been very small called Emmaus and eggs. I, uh, eggs is breakfast, right? We sit around and we have something to eat. We fellowship first, we talk, and then we sit down and we have a, a more serious discussion about our faith journey uh, in the pattern of the road to Emmaus, which is the story told of Jesus walking after the resurrection. They don't realize it's the risen savior until he sits down and breaks the bread at the end of the walk. And it's called the road to Emmaus. And so I, I the idea was that we're on a journey and that we would be as, as open in our discussion as we possibly could. And we weren't going to try to, you know, pigeonhole anybody. We were going to share. And then by coming and reasoning together, maybe we would learn new things. Some of us would change and others of us wouldn't, but everybody was on their own journey and moving at their own speed. It wasn't my job to change anybody. And that sounds, that sounds really inclusive and very much like what I would love to experience in church. And, and by the way, it hasn't been without its bumps. We've had a couple of people come in and they're guests and, you know, have hijacked the conversation in strange ways, right? That's happened. Had somebody get really angry at me for one little thing I said because of some baggage or trauma that had happened to them in the past. And so, I, you know, I had to sit and listen. And in that particular case, I had to really listen that out. I had to say, wait a minute, you know, you thought that I said this, but I never said that. That's something you brought to the table, right? Here's what I actually meant by what I said. You know, and and on the flip side, I had to find out about this person's trauma and and learn about why they were approaching the situation they were. The yeah, and that was a growth experience. But, you know, uh, I'll tell you what was not happening. Nobody's paying me to be there. Nobody's paying me. Nobody paid to come. Right. We didn't pass around and say, we're well, going to serve Jim's causes here. It didn't. That's not what happened. In uh, it's interesting. There's a uh, in first Timothy. There's a suggestion by Paul, he's ostensibly the writer of this, that elders who preach are worthy of double honor. So we get honor, we have the term honorarium, which is closely related because he's very obviously talking. It's hard to deny that he's actually talking about the idea of compensation so that somebody who's an elder and teacher is worthy of double honor. They've done, they put in a lot of work to come here. They're doing two jobs, right? And, and so he's suggesting honorarium. Um, but then in that same passage, he said, older wi widows before this, that older widows are worthy of honor. So I have to, have to ask the question, how much is the church subsidizing its older widows? And then when you figure out what the older widow rate is, then we can double that if you wish and give that to the pastor. But if you haven't figured out that first part of it, right, if that's not done, <laughs> then why are we sitting here worrying about how much he's getting compensated? Second passage I'd point to, um, Acts 18, the beginning of Acts 18, we learn that the apostle Paul, who's responsible for Christianity as we know it, like he's the guy that puts it on the map, spreads it all over the, the Gentile world. He's a tent maker. He's a tent maker to support his missionary habit. So it says that what he does, he arrives in a town. It actually explains his strategy. He does tent making with other people who share his faith. And they talk about their faith as they're making their tent. It's hard work that they're doing. It's not little your little pup tent we're talking about here, right? He's talking with them as they're doing the work. And other people can join that conversation. So it's a part, the way that they, he's he's got church going on even as he's working. 
And then on, then he goes to the religious place on the Sabbath and he tries his best to teach there and tell what he knows. And that's where he finds his converts initially. He would always go into town, identify the synagogue, start working on his tents, begin associating with people that he could, or maybe people would accompany him and told him in Acts 18, he's got two people that have gone with him. And they are tent makers also, a couple who work us alongside him. And so they have their fellowship and they have other workers that they're working with. And they're talking about these things and creating community. And then on the weekend, they're hitting the synagogue. But he's supporting his own missionary habit is my point. So, you know, the idea that we've got to build these large edifices, you know what ends up happening in most of these situations? It becomes about the three Bs, buildings, butts, and budgets. Okay. They have to get butts in the seat. They got to have, they got to, they pay a lot for the edifice that sits there frequently empty. Um, it's not a really good use of resources, frankly. It's not been, it's not been designed to do the things that it needs to do. So that that's, these are some of the problems that start to pop up. And, and then, you know, the reason I left one of the churches I left, <laughs> We had a decided that the church that I was going to had decided it was completely debt free, that it was going to take on uh, debt to do an expansion of its building when the membership had not increased over the last five years. And they were convinced that if they built new edifice, new facilities that they, and modified the ones that they had, by the way, that's what they ended up doing. They downgraded a modification that if they could down, if they could modify what they had that they would be more attractive and they could bring in more people. So they were going to build, they were going to borrow from the bank to build more people. Now the scripture says that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. But for some reason, we got to walk down to the local bank and ask a guy in a suit to give us some money. That didn't make any sense to me, but it didn't stop there. They brought in a company to do the capital fundraising. And the capital fundraising even included material that we would use in the Sunday school lessons. And we as Sunday school teachers were all told, this is the material you're going to be using. And oh boy, I used it good and hard. I actually took people to look at what was actually being said. We went to the verses and the context around him instead of just doing the, the rote lesson. Open people's eyes, right? But if you've got, think about a family now. This is my analogy. We've been talking about a family. This is the reason I'm bringing this up. Think about a family. If you're inviting outside parties to help a family solve a problem. Is that a sign that things are going great? Or is that a sign that they need help, that something's not quite right? Why did they need to come and create a manipulative program from an interventionist on the outside? If you're inviting, you know, lawyers in, for example, that's a real bad thing, right? And here we're inviting an outside party who's not part of the family to help us figure out that we need to give. And the level of manipulation that was going on in all those situations was just absolutely off the charts. And it was one of three reasons, all that landed at the same time that we turned, that we ended up leaving. <clears throat> because I didn't don't really think that, it, at the end of the day, you start to wonder if they really believe they're not their own nonsense. And, and if you've left under these kind of conditions, I can understand why. I understand why people are duns. This isn't what's being taught. This is not the love of Christ. That's not what's going on here. So these are obviously good people with faith who are doing what they believe is the Lord's work. I don't see anything wrong with that. Nope. But there's something that's gotten off the rails. What is it and how is it going to change? They are bringing their political culture war baggage 
into church. This is what everybody's doing. They're bringing their political culture war baggage, the stuff that divides them, the stuff that they claim is their identity into the church. The most important thing about you is not that you are a heterosexual or that you're male or that you're white or especially not that you're American. The most important thing about you is that you were made in the image of God and that God himself loved you so much that he came and died for you. And this is true of every person you're coming in contact with. That's the most important thing. And that's what's supposed to be talked about at this place we call church. Can we talk about the place that we call church for a moment? Can we talk about the word church? Church sounds like a religious building, does it not? Okay, well, that's not what it started out being. Uh, we're told in the, in, the, in the New Testament church that they met in homes, and they were called the ecclesia, the ecclesia. We aren't going to have the time to go through all the research I got on this subject. But I want to tell you that what the ecclesia was. And I got this written down, so I would say this the best possible way. In the assembly of citizens in a citizen state, it would be the called out ones, the people who can't, the ecclesia, the, the, all the people who basically have a vote. So it's a governing word. Juries were held in this way. Uh, the famous trial of Socrates was held before the ecclesia. The Athenian ecclesia, uh, which we have the most detailed records about, dates all the way back to 621 BC. So it's, it's, this is a long-standing word. And it's important to note that this is the word that's chosen in the New Testament to describe this union of people when words like temple and synagogue and other religious places of meeting already existed. You weren't being invited to come to the temple. In fact, when, when uh, at, the at the crucifixion, the, 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 the curtain to be in front of the Holy of Holies is torn in the temple. And Jesus had, pro uh, had prophesied that he was the replacement of the temple. It was going to be destroyed. But in three days, his temple was going to be raised up. And we as believers all exist as a temple. So you, when you have people say, well, we're in the house, this is the phrase I would hear growing up, oh, this is the house of God. No, it's not. I'm the house of God. You're the house of God. He's come to live in our dwelling, us. So, and, and I, I, by the way, we can, you know, go, we can really go pretty heavy on this. Uh, Stephen, uh, while he's being tried and he's about to be stoned in the New Testament, Acts 7, he called the, in verse 38, he called the uh, people of Israel, the assembly, the ecclesia in the wilderness. Uh, in Acts 19.39, the ecclesia is referred to as a convening of citizens to discuss legal matters. So they already knew that the word that they were using was a word of governance. Uh, we've talked about this before. We're going to talk about it again with Dave Brisbane uh, in, some, in an upcoming episode that we've got planned. Uh, this, is, this, this idea that, we, that church was to govern doesn't mean that they were to get involved in political parties. So this was a power under that comes up through service, okay? The, the, the Roman way, the Greco-Roman way, which is what we have inherited in our society, is a top-down order. 
there's hierarchy and regimes at each level. They are gradually expanding. They go from the five to the tens to the hundreds to the thousands. You know what I'm saying? Like they, they, and you're, and it's a pyramid that, that as your career goes on, you're attempting to climb to the top of, and your status is tied to that. Albert Moeller's status is tied to being at the top of the Southern Baptist Convention pyramid. He's the most famous Southern Baptist in the country. He's the most powerful Southern Baptist in the country. So the hell what? Who cares? And so, no, this is, Jesus said, I don't want you to be like the Romans who have power and authority over one another. He got down and washed feet so that he could demonstrate that this was an ultimately about service. So I want you to think of this in two, in two ways, two distinct ways. Because I think, the, the, actually, I'm going to say three. I think the, all Paul makes clear uh, um, in, gosh, I think it's again, Acts 18, but please don't quote me on that. No, it's Timothy. It's the Timothy verses we're looking at. It's 1 Timothy 5. Paul makes clear that first you take care of yourself. You have a responsibility to, to, to govern and control yourself, right? If you can work, you don't, if you don't work, you don't eat. That's literally a biblical idea. Okay. So I have a responsibility and the way I, the way I feed myself is I'm of service to others. Someone wants to pay me for the work that I do. So all of us have to be servants to, to feed ourselves. Then um, the second level is we have to start to, we join a community of people we gain affection for, we care about. And in binding together, we begin to be, form kind of our own social insurance program. We're going to look out for each other. We're going to care about one another. And you do this first. You don't go out and try to save the world. You first try to find a community because sooner or later, you may likely need to be one of the recipients of that care. So it's, it's, it's a pay it forward process. You are in a situation with others where you give first in, 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 with no expectation, but because you give that reciprocity, that karma comes back to you in some way. You, you, you are a, an essential part of that. Third level, and it's all voluntary. By the way, I want to, and, and just, I really want to make clear, it's all voluntary. There's no stricture or requirement on you in this situation. You are acting voluntarily. Third, now, because of this activity that's going on, there's some overflow that can be shared with the outside world. So you become kind of a mission station that can begin to meet needs, real needs feeding the poor, clothing the naked, looking after widows. Like all of this stuff can now begin to be done outside. And it's all power up. But if your budget's consumed with paying a, a staff, paying for a building, and then putting on programs to get butts in the seats so that we can keep this thing going. So at the same church that I just spoke of, I was on the evangelism committee. Ooh, good. We're going to go out and, and, and win people for Christ, right? No, we're going to put on an event at this, uh, so, some events. We, we have one successful event we do every year that brings people in. We want to have two more that are really good at bringing people in. So instead of having one program that's doing well, you know, we're going to have two or three that help build our network, make us bigger, make us more prominent, stronger, well-financed, able to do other things. This is top down. Yes. Instead of um, 
I like what you said. It wasn't underserved. Help me out here. That's the wrong word entirely. To serve under, to come to under. Serve and, under, right. Yes. Servant leadership. It's not power maybe. over, it's serve under. Serve under, right. That's it. Not power over, but serve under. That's kingdom. That's kingdom of God within you. That's not taking your walking orders from marching orders, should I probably say, from the top. And for those of you who are more into the passages and you're wondering whether or not I've, I've separated the word correctly, let me just tell you that the in the Old Testament, this word appears as well. The, there's a Hebrew version of this word. Uh, it's kahal, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, that is ends up being interpreted in the Septuagint version, which was already available at the time of Christ and the apostles. They were already seeing, reading and quoting from the Greek Old Testament. Assembly, convocation, congregation were some of the synonyms for that word. They were already aware of this governing power. And I already quoted uh, from Acts where it was used that way. This is this is this idea that the kingdom that was being brought to earth was going to be one that was transformative in that it created relationship. It didn't have power to force things to happen its way. It created relationship that caused things to want to become that way. To, to create something that was so attractive, people wanted to be involved. So I want to say an ecclesia instead of a temple. That's my bumper sticker, an ecclesia instead of a temple. I, I, I'm Organized religion has other problems that we've addressed in other episodes, uh, including how it started. And this is across the board, regardless of what it is. Christendom was corrupted. It's, it's a corruption of the initial gospel. It's a corruption of the initial concept of kingdom. And so I, I, I'm suggesting that we, my solution to this is that gatherings should be as small as possible. They should lack the professionalism that comes with, with status and money and power. They should not be driven by attendance numbers. Uh, they should be driven by relationship. Relationship should be the most important thing that's happening. And it's interesting because uh, if you go to Matthew, the book of Matthew, it says where two or three are gathered in my name. In fact, it's uh, the uh, the passage is Matthew 18. Uh, three different times in that passage, in red letters, uh, we're told that where two or three witnesses are, things happen. And that's the basis. That's the basis point where it starts, is in that two or three level. Everybody who leaves a comment here, everybody who leaves a comment here is, is contributing to an, an ecclesia moment, as it were. Right. And we can all go out here and decide what we're going to do next uh, to advance kingdom. And I do believe that what we are doing here at Grace Archie is a kingdom activity. We are trying to create something separate and outside where we don't have the cultural war battles intervening within that we are recognizing everybody deserves grace because they were all made in the image of God. And Christ cared enough to be here to seek relationship with us.